Welcome to Moving With Life. This is episode number 12. I am Andy Acosta. My friend Eddie Sines will be joining me today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for lending us your ears. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to leave reviews. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Episode number 12 is particular and it's relevant to what the podcast entails at times. I know I definitely try to catch myself whenever my ego jumps, any type of defensiveness. Uh, I definitely try to capture that. So we go into Extreme Ownership, Chapter 2, which is titled No Bad Teams, Only Bad Leaders. And it has to do with the ego. It has to do with controlling the ego, working with a team, being open-minded about suggestions in case uh, certain plans aren't working. There's always, usually always, a way to fix it and adjust so that the team succeeds and the mission is accomplished. Sometimes we get extremely attached to a situation or a project or even an idea and we're not willing to listen to others' ideas that maybe we can build on or add to the original idea. This chapter gives an example of leaders that work with other potential leaders who need more guidance. So without further ado, here is Moving With Life. So, Brian's not here. Again. Because he thinks he can just party every weekend or something. Good Lord. I'm kind of <laughs> jealous, though, because he's in Austin. And then for, you said two bachelorette? Uh, bachelorette. Bachelor yeah. parties? <laughs> he was, yes, yeah, it was two bachelor parties from his frat, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, he's out there. Well, he was having fun. He sent me some snaps last night. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Lucky bastard. I'm, I'm still exhausted from our from our road travel. So, Dude, no kidding. My back's like, stop. Yeah. That's exactly what I was um, uh, telling this person this morning. Um, this girl I've been talking to is like, yeah. she's like, what are you doing? And I'm just like, oh, it's 1230 in the afternoon, and I'm <laughs> honestly still in bed. <laughs> so like, my back was like, you abused the hell out of me all weekend, so I'm holding you ransom for the morning. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I did still get up early this morning. You know, I had, I had my cousin this weekend, so we still had our morning festivities that we get done whenever he's here on Sunday. So we did that. Got, we got we went to the movies. I saw Power Rangers again. Again. Uh, yeah, for me, I saw it on Thursday and I saw it today. Um, definitely, of course, like anything else, you, you always catch the new little details, you know, the second time around. That's time, a, yeah, that's how I felt about Get Out, and I still want to watch Get Out, like a third, fourth, and fifth time. Yeah. I know Brian was down. I'm pretty sure he'd probably still be down to go do that. We should definitely make a night out of that. That'd be great. That'd be good. Mm-hmm. Well, should we get into it? We're going to get straight into it for those listening Brian's not here, so we're going back to extreme ownership. No bad teams, only bad leaders. This chapter was written by Leif Babin, which was a platoon commander under Jocko Willink during the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. This little intro is takes place in Coronado, California during basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training, which is also known as BUDS. It pays to be a winner, shouted a much-feared blue-and-gold-shirted Navy SEAL instructor through the megaphone. It was night three into the infamous hell week of SEAL training. The students in camouflage fatigues were soaked to the bone and covered in greedy sand that chafed them until they were raw and bleeding. They shivered from the cold ocean water and cool wind of the Southern California night. 
The students moved with the aches and pains as only those who have suffered through 72 hours straight of nearly nonstop nonstop physical exertion can. Exhausted over the previous three days, they had slept for less than one hour total. Since Hell Week had begun, dozens of them had quit. Others had become sick or injured and were pulled from training. When this class had started basic underwater demolition SEAL training, known as BUDS, the SEAL basic training course, several weeks before, nearly 200 determined young men and e- sorry, nearly 200 determined young men had eagerly begun. All dreamed of becoming a U.S. Navy SEAL, prepared for years, and came to BUDS with every intention of graduating, and yet. Within the first 48 hours of Hell Week, most of those young men had surrendered to the brutal challenge, rung the bell three times, the signal for DOR or drop-on request, and walked away from their dream of becoming a SEAL. They had quit. Hell Week was not a fitness test. While it required some athletic ability, every student that survived the weeks of Bud's training prior to Hell Week had already demonstrated adequate fitness to graduate. It was not a physical test, but a mental one. Sometimes the best athletes in the class didn't make it through Hell Week. Success resulted from determination and will, but also from innovation and communication with the team. Such training graduated men who were not physically tough, but who could also outthink their adversary. So that's a little intro of uh, just giving some context of what's going on here in the beginning of the chapter. Uh, where you know the title is no, there's no bad teams, only bad leaders. Um, this last little sentence where it says such training graduated men who were not only physically tough but who could out, also outthink their adversary. In this case, their adversary being the tr- the actual trainers and instructors. Um, in in I don't know if it's only a navy thing, or if it's like a all around special forces type deal. But the instructors in in this situation they're called cadres. So you're either a blue and gold instructor or your cadre, which the cadre, I believe, is the head of that particular uh, class. Like, there's, like every class has a number, you know, class 200, 201, whatever. So there's always the head cadre and then the instructors that follow because, you know, they have, let's say, 200, 200 men, you know, trying, trying out or going through this training. So, of course, they, they, sp- they spread them out into teams because you're going to be in a SEAL team eventually. So that's, uh, that's just giving some context of what's going on here. Um, he then goes into, uh, Leif goes into where he tar- he kind of briefly mentioned how his Bud's experience was and how he what became a leader, I guess, through Bud's. He started, he started seeing what it meant to lead from the front and not necessarily, um, you know, make excuses, you know, for the team's fault or anything like that. So back to the book. The Bud students were grouped into teams, boat crews, of seven men established by height. Each seven-man boat crew was assigned an IBS, inflatable boat, small. An IBS was a small, by U.S. Navy terms, but awfully large and heavy when carried by hand. These large rubber boats, black with a painted yellow rim, weighed nearly 200 pounds and became heavier still when filled with water and sand. Um, pause here real quick. So, yeah, so... So these boats, let's say, you know, the big-ass big rubber boat that weighs 200 pounds. And, and Jocko and them talk about where they put, like, four-by-fours in there, too. Like, it wasn't just water and sand. They, uh, there would be like that. I know there's one example that they gave where they would line these boat teams up, 
and the instructors would walk on the boats. Like you were have they had you had, the thing is like they wanted you to still be like in perfect, I guess, technique, which perfect technique means uh straight hand straight up. People can't see you, but I'm demonstrating to Eddie. Um, and the cadres or the instructors would get on, like jump on and like jump and run across the boat. They had to hold it, you know, some of these routines were up 45 minutes to an hour of holding your hands up and it's, you know, six men and whatever. So it's pretty crazy just to think about like that extraneous training. Uh, I feel, I guess going back to this book, then, but then tying into when I'm training others or I'm explaining stuff and the pain that you have to go through anyways. You know, it's, uh, one thing that Jocko always talks about is, when he gets asked, like, well, how do you get through SEAL training? It's like, well, don't quit. You know, just, just, you, have, you have to not quit. You have to beat your mind, literally, so that, you know, that pain only just p bypasses you and then you continue with the school. Let me get back to the book here. In each boat crew, the senior ranking man served as boat crew leader, responsible for receiving orders from the instructors and briefing, directing, and leading the other six members of the boat crew. The boat crew leader bore responsibility for the performance of his boat crew. And while each member of the boat crew had to perform, the boat crew leader, by his very position as leader, received the most scrutiny from the instructor staff. Extreme ownership. This chapter, I, they, I mean, the, the term extreme ownership comes up in this chapter, but I kind of leave it out in my own thought processes because... Um, you can say, oh, I'm taking extreme ownership, but do you, are you conscious about it? And I think that that's where, you know, here where it says, uh, by his very position as leader, received the most scrutiny from the instructor because he's the leader. So it's it, in a business term, uh, or let's say even, okay, let's say even Eddie. He, he's the CEO of, of the group. So we go do the, we go do an event he then gets a complaint from the venue owner saying, hey, your guitarist did this. And it's like, oh, man, that's, that, it, it's, it's his fault. Or something along those lines where, based on this book, the answer really is, I'm sorry, I'll, you know, I'm sorry, it's, I'm sorry that happened. It won't happen again. Now, after that, that's where Eddie would go then to the guitarist, me or Denver, whatever the situation may be. be like, hey, man, like, this is what happened. Like, make sure it doesn't happen again. Whatever it is. It could be the simplest thing or it could be the worst thing. You know what I mean? I've only heard stories. I've tried to stay out of, honestly, I've tried to stay out of trouble in bars. I just don't, for one, don't deal with drunk people. But then, you know, I, I, I've always thought about the potential uh, loss of a gig because of me. I've always thought about that since I first started in that, in that that dive bar we played that well, I played that for a while back in West in, over in Westlaco. Um but I was very for whatever reason I was just very conscious of like the potential of losing a gig because of me and I didn't want it to be me you know interesting I don't think I've ever had that thought I think mostly just because I'm the front guy but I, I guess like subconsciously I think about that like I think about the way I come off to people am I getting if I, am I giving the crowd an opportunity to have a good time is like you know, is everything going well? Are we sounding good? And so, like, I feel all that weight, mm -hmm. like, pretty much all the time. Right, right, when, yeah. when we're at the gig, mm -hmm. just to make sure we're going to get that job again, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny. I'm, I'm going to bring up uh, the example from last night. You were talk we were talking about, or today, actually, um, from Friday's gigs, Friday's gig in Conroe where we got X amount of tips, right? Yeah. And today you text me, like, hey, man, we distributed it, right? And it's like, 
no. <laughs> you know, I, 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 and it was pure joke. But then I, when I started going over this for this afternoon, for this evening, I was like, well, that's where you, you, you're thinking about, okay, am I, you think about all the macro stuff, which it should be. So then developing a trust to where like, oh, Andy did this and I don't have to worry about it because you have the bigger picture. You are the CEO of the group. And I, I, I think I've briefly started kind of bringing this up to you and Brian maybe at some points where you, we, you as the CEO cannot micromanage everything. Right. And, and, and I, I see it as so tough because I'm not in that position. I'm very detached. So it's very easy to say. But in the case of this, where, you know, it, it, this, now the money's involved. It's like one thing that crossed me was trust. Like you have to have a team of that you can trust. Yeah. And it, and, I, and we're I feel like we're getting there, but like I said, I'm not in your position. I'm not the owner. I'm not the CEO. I'm not an investor. Even that, you know, uh, you know, putting a stake. You know, I'm giving you my time, but as an employee. Right. Which is totally different. But uh, but yeah, that, that's that's what I connected to when you text me that, and then when I like I said, I get back to this book, and I was like, man, you know, it's like. You, yeah. you can't micro. You as a CEO cannot micromanage everything because if you do, you forget. Let's say okay. Let's say you hadn't given me, or let's say I gave you the tips, and you and you only have thirty three bucks, and you are missing the rest of it. Well, so which the total on the tips was ninety nine dollars, yeah. right? So we had um, three players: is me, Andy, and then other Andy who yeah, was on the podcast several episodes back. And so it's three of us uh, split evenly three ways: thirty three bucks a person. So um, what had happened was, what had happened was, <laughs> yeah. um, Walker here. I mean, sorry. Dang it, I keep yeah. going off well, here. Well, okay. Stage name. Let's go on this real quick. Let's 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 dive on this real quick because I I wanted to I was gonna clear it up when Brian comes back next week, but we'll just do it right now. Go. So the reason for Walker being created was because at the time I had found out that all these people that I looked up to had stage names. So I, f- I didn't feel compelled. I felt it being a necessity to, if I wanted to make it in the business, I needed to do that. Even Todd Lanningham? Todd Lanningham is a stage name? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that guy. But like Bart Crow, Gary Allen, Gary LaVox. Uh, Ryan Adams, actually. Oh, there uh, you go. Yeah, well, his I real name's David. David okay. Ryan Adams. Okay. Yeah. So, so stuff like that. And, and I'll be honest, like, I started with my middle name. Like, my full name is Andres Roa Acosta. Right, and I started just fiddling with it. Took, I literally spent 24 hours on this. I'll never forget the day I did it. Like I still remember the day that I texted like Brian and like probably whoever, like all, any other friends I was talking to at the time, where I was like, "It's Walker," and and after that I was determined to make it work. And honestly, up to this point, it's not that it's not working, and I'm still using it because it's it's still very much a part of the business, like my business as far as a, as far as a, as a musician. But I didn't foresee the podcast. I didn't foresee me reading these books. I didn't foresee listening to podcasts and realizing, hey, to, for this podcast not to be superficial, I need to not be superficial. Which, hence, I then introduced myself using my proper last name, right? But the cool thing is, and I can let you know, Eddie, is that, you know, Walker's become like a nickname. It really has. And it's we're living proof right now. We're literally just... Um, almost two minutes ago, I referred to you as Walker, right. and, and, and totally forgot and we go by your real name here. And like when, it, like between me and Gonzo, like I mean Gonzo and Walker or whatever, Andy and Andy and Walk, Andy and Walker, you know whatever. And and I'm okay with that. So the cool thing is that I think we're in a place in time now where it's kind of like okay. I know a lot of people like 
still kind of like chuckle at the thought, like Andy Walker, you know, you're Mexican and whatnot. But it sticks. It stuck, man. And I'll, I'll never forget, there's this one guy out of Nashville I met once. He's a guitar player. I met him once at Brewster Street. And uh, we were exchanging phone numbers. I still, he's super cool. I, I forgot his name. Um, but we exchanged phone numbers at the time. And, and he's like, what's your last name? And I said, well, it's this but my stage name is Walker. So I'm like, if you want to put my real name, Acosta or Walker, he's like, man, he's like, he's like, why'd you do, like, why'd you do that? And I, I gave him my reasoning because this was already like two years into like having Walker and my social media is Walker. Now it's like solidified Walker. So I, I'm not going to bother confusing people more. I'd rather just clarify it. If, they, if you listen here, funny thing, a side note, is that even on my social media, if you go to my actual page on like to uh, my personal page on Facebook, I put Acosta in parentheses. And now my Instagram has Acosta in parentheses. And my Twitter has Acosta in parentheses. So I, I've decided to make that move because Walker is a part of the business. But for, for, the, for the sake of the podcast and for the sake of being honest, for the sake of the truth, it's like, okay, you're not wrong, but Walker's my stage name. That's what I, you know. And like I said, it's more like a nickname now. And and I'm okay, you know. It's it's kind of stuck, you know. And even then, it's not like my circle's super huge, where it's like, oh my god, like I I I got more hassle at the beginning, and now it's kind of just been the thing. And and even then, like some people that know my stage name is Walker, they still call me Acosta or hey, Acosta. Like thing in high school was like Acosta, right? Whatever. Some people still call me that. It's cool. Now at this point, it doesn't bother me either which way. So hey, if you go with Walker, it's Walker. People now know you know, what the background is of that. Dope. I'm glad we went on that, <laughs> on that little train there yeah. for a second. Um, so going back to the situation where I was uh, trying to micromanage this morning. Yeah. So um, a couple of nights ago, Friday, we get tipped out. Just to recap, um, $99 total, split three ways, $33 a person. I was busy worrying about other things, and so Walker here had, um, had taken um, control of distributing those tips, and he handed me um, what, um, you know, a little amount of cash here and told me what total was. And I was like, awesome, cool. We did super well on tips. That's great. Yeah, it was awesome. So thank you, Conroe. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Red Brick Tavern. We really appreciate that a lot. Definitely helps with the gasoline to get back home. So, and also shows the managers and owners that, Hey, you know, they like what they hear. And yes, you know, so that's good. Absolutely. Always a good sign. So thank you very much for that. We genuinely appreciate it a ton. So, um, anyway, so I had a text Walker this morning, like, Hey man, was it, $33 total in tips, or was it $99 total split three ways? And then that's where you clarified, and I was like, oh, okay, because I was counting that money today. I was counting all of my, um, all of my earnings the from the weekend. Yeah. yeah, and then I was like, oh, this was $33, so I'm assuming he split it up, but I'm going to ask just to make sure. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I was still, I was like, well, maybe he did mean it was a total of 33 or maybe he meant it was 99 split three ways. I was right. like, mm -hmm. still in the confusion, yeah. so that's why I had to bring it up. Yeah. But but you're right. Like having to micromanage things like that, um, it's like it's almost impossible. impossible. Yeah, it's yeah. almost impossible. I was gonna say. I was just about to say it's not impossible, but it sucks to do. Yeah, and, and it's hard to keep track of. And at some point, when the financial backing is there, that's why you have to hire people. Yeah. That's why people hire. I mean, you get how do who's that guy from your school got a social like social social media job? Oh, uh, my friend Dennis. Yeah, and yeah. he gets paid. I mean. A lot of money. Yeah, a ton of money. <laughs> it's like just for social media. So, but that's but that, it's an important element that a business needs, especially now. And they foresaw that then. That because that was a few years ago now. Right? Yeah, that would and have I, been I feel 2014. Like, okay, let's say 2014, three years ago, social media has grown even more immensely these past three years. I feel like it just, and maybe we're just more in tune to it. I don't know. Maybe because we're trying to put content, maybe because we're, we're into it 
So maybe we just, at least for me, it's amplified and intensified. Maybe. You know, because we're just doing it, trying to do it every day and letting people know what's up. Yeah. I don't want to um, um, change the hard subject too much, but um, going back to what you're saying about outthink over, like, outperforming your adversaries, and that's something that, that really stuck with me from mm -hmm. that um, little part you read there from Extreme Ownership just yeah. now. Because um, it, it made me uh, kind of jog my memory about my security job that I used to work. Okay. And um, if for anyone listening that hasn't seen a picture of me, I'm like one of the scrawniest, skinniest, shortest dudes you could possibly think of. So I have literally no meat on my bones, and every guy always tells me you need to eat more beef. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I eat beef. It just doesn't stick on me. <laughs> so um, still haven't found the solution to that except for, I guess, getting in the gym, which Working I don't out. do. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, fast metabolism, too. I'm just, just throwing that out there. But sure. anyway, so I had to constantly outthink um, the problem at hand with a security job if we had like um, someone who was being physically aggressive or needed to calm down or was like in, an, in not a cool state of mind like they're like in an angry state of mind they're kind of pent up for some reason you know like like when you have to kick someone out for fighting or for you know being aggressive causing a ruckus or whatever you know so 90% of the time the dudes were like bigger than I am, you know, so it doesn't put me necessarily in the greatest, um, you know, advantage point here. So the way I usually outthought those situations when I did have to do that was I asked them to just step outside with me so that I could hear them explain it because inside the club, it was too loud to hear, but that was also kind of my fallback, um, you know, that I needed to bring them outside. And once I have them outside beyond the door, situation's over. Nothing else matters. Yeah, you don't have to deal with them anymore. Exactly. Once they're outside, they... I can choose to let them not let them back in, or I can choose to let them back in and hear out the situation. Which I mean, of course, like I wanted to, but the situation was a lot more controlled when I had my, um, you know, the person I was talking to outside. And so that was just a small way that I, um, you know, just had to outthink um, in, instead of you know, uh, if I was like a bigger dude, then I could kind of take care of it inside if if you know shit hit the fan. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. Um, for me, at the moment. It's not outthinking my adversary because that, that would that basically would say like making you my my adversary, which that's very not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying I'm just trying to make sure we're all aligned, of understanding. Um, that's the only thing I, I'm gonna I'm gonna we're gonna continue with the book, but I know in my case at the moment at this moment how I'm using this uh, little piece of the book is working with Eddie to make sure that I understand him, he understands me. The guys understand him, and then we can move forward with the project. You know? Yes. Uh, that, that's how I'm using it now. Let's get back to the book. During SEAL training, and really throughout a SEAL's career, every evolution was a competition, a race, a fight, a contest. In BUDS, this point was driven home by the SEAL instructors who constantly reminded the students it pays to be a winner. When racing as a boat crew during Hell Week, the winning boat crew's prize for victory was to sit out the next race, earning a few brief minutes of respite from the grueling nonstop physical ev evolutions. They weren't allowed to sleep, but just to sit down and rest were, were especially precious commodities. While it paid to be a winner, this rule had a corollary. It really sucked to be a loser. Second place in the instructor's vernacular was simply the first loser. But bad performance, falling far behind the rest of the pack and coming in dead last, carried especially grueling penalties, unwanted attention from the SEAL instructors who dished out additional punishing exercises on top of 
the already exhausting Hell Week evolutions. Meanwhile, the victorious boat crew celebrated by sitting out the next race, and most important, not getting wet and cold for a few brief minutes. So these evolutions, they were really like maybe like three, four minute evolutions, but you do it for a couple hours. And like in this case of the boat crew, I, I might get into it. I'm not, I'm not sure. I might skip over it. Anyways, but in evolution, you know, they have like markers out in the ocean that they basically follow. So you, car you carry your boat, you run out to the water, you paddle, you go out to the marker, come back. And whoever wins, well, then you get the rest for the next race. And then the loser, let's say, has to do 50 burpees. And then after they're done, then they get back into the evolution, right, right back into the evolution. You know, uh, that's just to give an insight of as far as what an evolution would be in this situation. So skipping, ahead, skipping forward now. In every race, there were standout performers. Throughout this particular Hell Week, one boat crew dominated the com competition. Boat crew, too. They won or nearly won every single race. They pushed themselves hard every time, working in unison and operating as a team. Boat Crew 2 had a strong leader, and each of the individual Boat Crew members seemed highly motivated and performed well. They compensated for each other's weaknesses, helped each other, and took pride in winning, which had its rewards. After each victory, Boat Crew 2 enjoyed a few precious minutes of rest while the other Boat Crews toiled through the next race. Though Boat Crew 2 was still cold and exhausted, I saw smiles on most of their faces. They were performing excep exceptionally well. They were winning, and morale was high. You know, the smile on their faces, Jocko talks about that all the time, where they ultimately wanted to be there, and they already, they foresee the pain, maybe not how much, but they foresaw the pain, so it was, it was a no factor in the bigger picture. They know what, they're, they, know what they were going for, and that, that was the only thing that mattered. You know, all the smalls of the day-to-day, -day, the minute-to-minute -minute stuff in this case, did not matter. Meanwhile, Boat Crew 4 was, deli was delivering a standout performance of a different kind. They placed dead last in virtually every race, often lagging far behind the rest of the class. Rather than working together as a team, the men were operating as individuals, furious and frustrated at their teammates. We heard them yelling and cursing at each other from some distance, accusing the others of not doing their part. Each boat crew member focused on his own individual pain and discomfort, and the, pain, and the boat crew leader was no exception. He certainly recognized they were underperforming, but likely in his mind and that of his boat crew, no amount of effort could change that, and their horrific performance was a result. So, you know, the difference of the, in, you know, the good leader versus the bad leader in this case. And really the bad leader, and I'm going to get to it, but they know that this is only training. Not, not the people in the, not the trainees, but the trainers, you know, the instructors, the cadres. They know that, okay, he's going to need extra help. You know, just because you lose every race, you don't get kicked out. You literally have to quit. You literally, uh, if you've seen American Sniper at the beginning, towards the beginning when Chris, uh, Chris Kyle Bradley Cooper is going through buds and the guys are ringing three bells, that is when you quit. Now there are medical ex exceptions, like if you, you know, break in, like people break ankles, they break necks, they break shoulders, whatever, going through these evolutions. So those are some exceptions where you don't make it because your your body's just not physically capable, which sucks. Because uh, even Jogga talked about, you know, some of the coolest guys, their their body just couldn't take it. Maybe they needed more training before going to buds or whatever. And you know, word is, I mean. A, of what I've heard is that it's hard to get into buds anyways. 
So basically, you have to wait for the next rotation, and who knows when that is. It's it's uncertain, and there's no guarantee. Damn. So so there's no guarantee, and to go to Bud, you still have to go through basic Navy tr- boot camp and stuff like that. So more than likely, you're gonna be stuck in a ship for a year or two. Which these guys like, for the most part, the way Jocko and Lave talk about, they're studs. You know, quote them on that. They're studs. You know, and if you see Jocko and Lave, I mean, they're two twenty five. You know, six two, solid meat. You know, muscle. And uh, so I can, you can imagine that those guys are the, the wrench pushers of the boat. You know, they're the ones doing a lot of the heavy-duty work. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, moving forward. I kept an eye on the leader of Boat Crew 4. If he did not show substantial improvement in leadership ability, he would not graduate from the program. SEAL officers were expected to perform like everyone else, but more important, they were also expected to lead. So far, Boat Crew 4's leader was demonstrating performance that was subpar and unacceptable. Our SEAL Senior Chief Petty Officer, the most experienced and highly respected non-commissioned officer of the SEAL Instructor Cadre, took a keen interest in Boat Crew 4 and their lackluster leader. You better take charge and square your boat away, sir, said the Senior Chief to the Boat Crew 4 leader. Senior Chief was a Goliath of a man with piercing eyes that instilled fear equally into terrorists on the battlefield and students in training. An exceptional and revered leader himself, he had mentored many young junior officers. Now, Senior Chief offered an interesting solution to Boat Crew 4's atrocious performance. So before I go into this next part, uh, when I was rereading this chapter, and I, we got to this part of the intro, of this, I guess, little introduction, um, the question that's about to be asked is so simple. It's so simple, and that's where, like, you're, ne- you're neither micromanaging nor macromanaging, but sometimes you don't have to think so detailed to find the answer. So, before you continue, what would you do if you were a Broke Crew 4 leader? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, how would you change that situation around where your team is complaining to each other about each other, you know, blaming each other for each other's poor work. Right. So funny thing is like the, my answer to this question at this moment is probably totally different to before I read the book and instilling these, these little tools and mechanisms into my day to day. So first thing I would think about is like, Hey guys, let's work. First thing I would say it's we let's work together. We need, we need to get through this. Um, I guess one thing that I would think about in detail was like, okay, are you right-handed or left-handed? So that you can paddle on the right, on your stronger side, you know. And then, um, if there's any bickering, also separating, kind of like, like, kind of like in a in a classroom. If it's two people bickering out of six, you can probably separate them, like one in front corner, one in the back corner. Like, hey guys, like you know, there's a bigger like, and also reinstilling that there's a bigger mission. It's like, do you guys want to graduate or not? That that's how I'd probably handle it. And it's to me, it's so diverse that. I think there's many possibilities of fair. what could what could it be, but but that's that's my initi- my initiation to it would be like, hey guys, what's the problem? And if it's just like, oh, I'm tired or whatever, oh, get over the fuck or go or quit, you know. Um, but then I would personally find out, okay, are you right-handed, left-handed? Base off, base you guys off of that, and if you if there's any bickering between maybe two people, I think two people is more manageable. Now it's three, that's half the team. I I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to deal with that yet. You know, I I the teams I've quote-unquote dealt with or worked with 
have been, you know, I've dealt with three or four or five people, but I've never had maybe three people bicker at once. It's usually between two people that maybe they don't agree on a, on a way to do it. Um, or they or, well, yeah, I guess that's just that where one person just thinks it thinks it should be one way and the other one, you know, just a totally different way. And me as a leader, it's like, hey, guys, I'm the leader, but we, we I would reinstill the we, the us, the team. You know, that comes first. It's like, do you guys want to win or do you guys want to go do more burpees or pull-ups or push-ups or whatever? You know, it, it, it comes down to that. That's what I would say now to get into that. Fair enough. So let's move forward. Let's swap out the boat crew leaders from the best and the worst crews and see what happens, said Senior Chief. All other controls would remain the same. Heavy and awkward boats manned by the same exhausted crews, cold water, greedy and chafing sand, wearied men competing in challenging races. Only a single individual, the leader, would change. Could it possibly make any difference, I wondered. The plan was quickly relayed to the, to the other SEAL instructors. Boat crew leaders from boat crews 2 and 6 report, blared the SEAL instructor through the megaphone. So here they get together, they don't know, hey, what the, they first come off with, hey, what's going on? It's like, uh, of course, boat crew two's winning. So like, well, I'm good, you know. And boat crew four is like, oh, my team, they're just not motivated. They don't want to do. They're not listening to me. Or, and I'm I'm tired. I, I I can't I can't you know work. I can't work with the team. The team's at fault. And so then the instructors let them know that they switched. And here it doesn't specifically say that boat crew. The boat crew two leader was upset, but Leif assumes that he's upset. He's like, my team's freaking winning. You know, we're ahead 95% of the time. Like, why do I have to switch? So skipping forward just a little bit. A miraculous turnaround had taken place. Boat crew four had gone from last place to first. The boat crew members had begun to work together as a team and won. Boat crew two still performed well, though they narrowly lost the race. They continued to challenge Boat Crew 4 for the lead in the follow-on races, and each of these boat crews outperformed all the rest, with Boat Crew 4 winning most of the races over the better part of the next hour. It was a shocking turn of events. Boat Crew 4, the same team and the same circumstances, only under new leadership, went from the worst boat crew in the class to the best. Gone was their cursing and frustration. And gone, too, was the constant scrutiny of individual attention they had received from the SEAL instructor staff. Had I not witnessed this amazing transformation, I, had, I might have doubted it. But it was a glaring, undeniable example of one of the most fundamental and important truths at the heart of extreme ownership. There are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Um, one thing he does mention was because at the, with the original teams, Boat Crew 2, which was winning, because the, the original leader had coached up the guys, that's why they still came in second, maybe third, second, third, but they were never last anymore because that's the work. That's, that's where later on in the book we'll get to it, working up and down the chain of command. Like, hey, sir, we've been together longer, the five of us. We've been winning. Can you hear us out? That's probably what happened. That's good. Oh, okay, that's, I thought you were going to say something because you're kind of coming up and down. Sorry. Line. I wasn't sure. It's fine. No, it's fine. Um, but that that's, that's like I said, we'll, get to, we'll, we'll eventually get to it. We're, you know, working up and down chain command. But this is the simplest version in a military aspect as far as, sir, 
we know you're a senior enlisted guy. Um, if you could hear us out, let's let's try to you know we we want to win. We've been winning, you know. So that's so let's move forward. How is it possible that switching a single individual only the only the leader had completely turned around the performance of an entire group? The answer. Leadership is the single greatest factor in any team's performance. Whether a team succeeds or fails is all up to the leader. The leader's attitude sets the tone for the entire team. The leader drives performance or doesn't. And this applies not just to the most senior leader of an overall team, but to the junior leaders within the team. And that's what I just mentioned was, um, sir, um, we're glad you're a leader. And I think even that would make a make this make it would make a statement of being positive, sir. Welcome to our team. You know we're happy. To, you're ha we're happy to have you. Um, and if if that leader who wasn't winning gives, like, hey, this is what this is what I think we should do. It's like, and maybe they took some of it. Like, okay, sir, awesome. Let's build on that. You know, they're not worried about. Oh, am I tired? They're all tired. You know, I think the original leader had them. You know, they've already come to that consensus, which they can move forward from. Not not dwell on it. So moving forward, um, here uh, Leif gives a little insight as far as what he went through when he was going through buds, you know, back in, I think, like 2000 or so, like, you know, before Ramadia for sure. Um, he says, I discovered that it was far more effective to focus on their efforts, not on the days to come or the far distant finish line they couldn't yet see, but instead on a physical goal immediately in front of them, the beach marker, a landmark or road sign a hundred yards away. If we could ex execute with a monumental effort just to reach an immediate goal that everyone could see, we could then continue to the next visually attainable goal and then the next. I, I made sure to read that part because sometimes we get tired in the third set. Sometimes we get tired going towards the, the end of the second set. You're talking about music when we yeah, play yeah, shows? Yeah, going back to us and the way, when I, like I said, when I was rereading this uh, yesterday and today, um, that's immediately what I thought about. It's like, if we can just focus on the hour and then take a break and then focus on the hour and take a break and focus on the hour and, we'll, and we're done. Yesterday, I feel like we, we, yesterday went by pretty fast for me. Same. Regardless. I, I know you got fatigue and I was feeling, I, I for sure we were feeling fatigue just from the road alone. You know, 12 hours of driving in, in, in within 36 hours, yeah. maybe or so. Um, that took a toll, but, um, time-wise, because even JJ's like, man, like, it's flying by. He, he mentioned to me, he's like, oh, man, it's flying by. I'm like, I don't disagree. Like, it, it's it was crazy to me how fast it was going because I feel like venue to venue, it's just different every single time, for me, time-wise. Right. For me, um, I was just so exhausted and just hadn't slept much of all, um, you know, the past, you know, as you said, like 36 hours, two days or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, just hadn't really slept much at all. I think I took, like, a 30, 45-minute nap maybe at the most. Um, before going to the gig and so like yeah and then on top of that I just don't feel like I was able to warm up my voice enough to get going so first set was all good second set all good getting into the third set my voice was telling me it's time to shut down so it's like but my body's like nope you still got a whole hour of this shit so we're gonna do it and you're gonna push and we're gonna get it out so it's at that point um, time starts flying by fast for me because um, I'm starting to take care of everything a little more precisely and a little more attentively, if that makes sense, when it comes to um, preserving uh, what's left of my voice for that mm -hmm. night. Mm -hmm. 
you know? So, uh, like, for example, like, just taking it note by note, section by section, line by line, word by word, um, you know, just et cetera. And then by the time I know it, we're to the last song or to the last jam, and it's yeah. that's it, and it's time right, to go. Right. So it, in that sense, um, that's, that's it in, in a way, went by fast for me. So Leif is still kind of like thinking about himself and I'm going to read this part of what he, his, his retrospective view. Looking back, I could have yelled a lot less and encouraged more. As a boat crew leader, I protected my boat crew from the instructor staff as much as I could. It was us versus them, as I saw it. In protecting my boat crew, I actually sheltered a couple of perpetual underperformers who dragged the rest of the boat crew down. The... That loyalty was misguided. If we wouldn't want to serve alongside our boat crew's weakest performers once we were all assigned to SEAL platoons in various SEAL teams, we had no right to force other SEALs to do so. The instructors were tasked with weeding out those without the determination and will to meet the high standards of performance. We hindered that. So basically, you know, still protecting the team no matter what. Protecting the team no matter what. Um, and eventually... They did get weeded out. You know, eventually, there's so there's it, that's where it goes to. It's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate, which we talked about. So ultimately, how my boat crew performed was entirely on me. The concept that there were no bad teams, only bad leaders, was a difficult one to accept, but nevertheless a crucial concept that leaders must fully understand and implement to enable them to most effectively lead a high-performance team. Leaders must accept total responsibility own problems that inhibit performance, and develop solution to those problems. A team could only deliver exceptional performance if a leader ensured the team worked together toward a focused goal and enforced high standards of performance, working to continuously improve. With a culture of extreme ownership within the team, every member of the team could contribute to this effort and ensure the highest levels of performance. Half of that is stuff I'm just reiterating, but that's the point. You know, I one, I'll never forget one time you asked me, if Jocker repeats his stuff a lot, why do you still listen to him? I'm like, now because there's a lot of little golden nuggets that he hasn't mentioned before, but the reiteration helps you just remember it. And then once that seed is planted indefinitely, you do come to use it, you know, throughout your day-to-day -day things or whatever you're trying to get, accomplish. So moving forward, he, got, he, he, he goes back to thinking about the, the guys he's now watching, the, these new trainees that want to complete buds to become a SEAL. This next section, he talks about some experiences he had while in Ramadi. Only months before this very hell week, I had been a SEAL platoon commander in Ramadi, Iraq, leading combat missions into the most violent enemy-held areas of the city. We had been in more firefights than I could count against a well-armed, experienced, and highly determined enemy. Death lurked around the corner at any moment. Every decision I and the leaders within our platoon and task unit made, made carried potentially mortal consequences. We had delivered a huge impact on the battlefield, killed hundreds of insurgents, and protected U.S. soldiers and Marines. I was proud of those triumphs. But we also had suffered immense tragedy with the loss of the first Navy SEAL killed in combat in Iraq, Mark Lee. Mark was an incredible teammate, an exceptional SEAL warrior with an amazing sense of humor that kept us laughing through the darkest of times. 
He was shot and killed in the midst of a furious firefight in one of the largest single battles fought by U.S. forces in South Central Mahdi. Mark was my friend and brother. I was his commander, ultimately responsible for his life. Yet I had received only a minor gunshot wound that day while Mark was struck and killed instantly. I had come home and he had not. That was devastating beyond measure. I grieved too for Mike Monsoor from Task Unit Bruiser's Delta Platoon, who, while not a member of my platoon, was also a friend and brother. Mike had jumped on a grenade to save three of his teammates. Mike was loved and respected by all who knew him. Like Mark, we deeply mourned his loss. On the same day Mark Lee had been killed, another beloved SEAL from Charlie Platoon, Ryan Job, had been shot in the face by an enemy sniper. He was gravely wounded, and we weren't sure he would live. Yet Ryan, tough as nails, had survived, although his wound left him permanently blind. Still, Ryan's drive and determination were unstoppable. He married the girl of his dreams, and after medically retiring from the Navy, enrolled in a college program and earned, his, earned a business degree, graduating with a 4.0 GPA. Despite being blind, Ryan successfully reached the 14,410-foot summit of Mount Rainier and personally bagged a trophy bull elk using a rifle fitted with a specially designed scope with a camera for a spotter. Ryan was an exceptional SEAL, a wonderful teammate, and a friend who inspired all who knew him. Though he had as much right as anyone to be bitter about the hand life had dealt him, he was not. We laughed continuously every time we got together. Ryan and his wife were expecting their first child, and he could hardly contain his excitement. But just when I thought that the men of Charlie Platoon and Task Unit Bruiser and their families who had suffered and endured so much were safe from the specter of death, Ryan Job died in recovery from his surgery to repair his combat wounds. Wounds had received he had received under my charge. No words can fully describe the hammer blow that this news dealt. Agony beyond comp comprehension. As their platoon commander, the loss of Mark and Ryan were a crushing burden that I would bear for the rest of my days. I knew that Mike's platoon commander in Delta Platoon felt the same way. And as commander of Task Unit Bruiser, Jocko carried this burden for all. And yet, as difficult as this was for me, I knew I could not ever fully understand how devastating the loss of these fine men was to their families and closest friends. In the months and years ahead, it was my duty to help them, help them and support them as best I could. I read that part on purpose because so that people don't forget about stuff like this that the media doesn't talk about. And besides that is Ryan Job's little story. Blind, he got a 4.0. Had, I, I mean, I feel like had I read this, you know, when I was in college, I probably would have gotten a higher GPA or at least been moved to want to get a higher GPA. But when tying this to, I guess, the podcast and what we do with Brian as well, we, the topics we bring up and trying to get over these day-to-day -day humps, you know, of or looking forward to the weekends or looking forward to sleep and stuff like that. This is one of the stories that I'll never forget, and I, I wanted to say it on purpose so that people can realize, like, you're way more capable to do things than you think. Absolutely. And it's 
I'm glad you read it because it's uh, it's an important perspective thing. These people just want to kind of throw in the towel, but when you have like a perspective like that, you really have no excuses left. Yeah, it's on YouTube. There's a video that Jocko posted about no excuses, and he he gives an excerpt from another book he gave, and the scenario I believe is like World War One, which is basically trench warfare. So it's cold and bitter, and and then so he, so he he then compares it to his. He's like, you know what? I'll never complain again. He he gave basically that. You know, no more excuses, and and I I feel because I, I know I'm in the, I'm in the middle of it for myself too. I I fight with my brain every single day, and to get over those, it's it's these small stories for me at least, and I do hope it does bring some type of at least even like I said that one percent a day. Even if it's that one, even if it helps you get to that one percent tonight, you know, stay up an extra hour and read an extra page, or write an extra paragraph, and or do something extra tonight. You know, do something today that separates you from, or gets you closer to your goal. You know, whatever that may be. Um, we can get into like patience and stuff, but I will do that another day. But that that's what Ryan Job's story does for me because it's like he's blind, he's shot an elk. He has a four. He got a four point in a and in business degree. So that's. I mean, I got a business degree. So it's like, yeah, I I can, I know what it, what it, I guess takes to get to get one to get a degree. I mean, we all do. We we have our degrees, um, but to know that this man who went to war came back blind got a four point had kept a four GPA. It's like I never had a four GPA. You know, it's just, I don't know. I, I guess it's a perspective thing. I'm I'm kind of reiterating. I'm kind of like rambling, being redundant, but. It's it's it does it has left a mark for me. What it does for me at this moment is uh, just a fresh reminder. Not that I feel like I ever really do this, but just in case I ever do, it's a fresh reminder to not ever play the victim mentality. Which I mean, just as um, you know, uh, Leif, uh, Leif Leif Babin. Yes. Just as Leif Babin was saying about about Ryan's situation, he could have very easily just kind of, you know been left an angry man and bitter at the world and bitter at his circumstance, but he worked with the hand that he got and he made the best out of it, far more than anyone with a better health than he would have done. So. Yep. So I'm skipping ahead, but the piece I just, um, I'm moving over. Basically, he, he again goes back to the guys he's now going through with Buds. He's now training them in Buds. And how they'll never know what they're in for yet until they go. And that was kind of like the, the middle piece of Ryan, Ryan Joe, Mike Munsoor, uh, Mark Lee, those guys. That was kind of like the middle piece of this section of these, these guys that he was now training and working up will not know until you go to war. You know, There's several books that I've read and Jock reviews them where these leaders, some leaders... You know they they do exceptionally well in training. They're they have, their teams are behind them. They're supporting them one hundred percent. They get to a real battlefield and they freeze, or they run. I, there was actually one book that I read. Uh, I believe it's "Steal Your Soldiers' Hearts" by Colonel David Hackworth. Um, and one of the he literally ran in fright, like it was like you know, a kid, you know, running. And it just reading it. Um, I don't know if you could. I mean, yeah, you can see maybe someone running like in a movie, maybe put into perspective like that. But reading the detail of the situation and tanks and all the things going on, and for your leader to run, that's like the ultimate. 
thing. I, I, I only chuckle about it because it's too incredible to, um, to even think about, to even consider saying, oh, I know how you feel. No, you have, you, you can't have empathy for that or sympathy for that because there's, it, unless we've been over there, you know. Putting it in a picture, I guess, it's like if you're watching Saving Private Ryan yeah. and Tom Hanks decided to just run. Yeah, okay, that, okay, that's good. That's better. So, yeah, if Tom Hanks himself were to run in that movie at any point, like, that's exactly what happened in this book. And, and the book's true story. Just like I'm pretty sure like Saving Private Ryan, you know, there's some truth to all that, to what happened there. Because even Jocko says uh, that movie is like that intro scene when they stormed the beach, like that's very like – he said they did a good job. You know, Steven Spielberg and them that did a good job of – capturing that moment of uh, what was going on that scene is nuts to think about i haven't seen that movie in a minute but every time it's on i'm always watching it it's such a good one not to dive too far deep into yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Into yeah. cinematic discussion right. yeah yeah but yeah no that, that's exactly that it's like that's like the ultimate thing is seeing your leader run and then if your junior guys you know willing i mean that he's the next one in charge you know with sergeant or whoever is next in line of that particular platoon or group they're the next ones, you know, they're the next ones. Move back to the book. As they went forth to serve as officers and leaders in SEAL platoons and beyond, all responsibility and accountability rested on their shoulders. If their platoons underperformed, it was up to them to solve problems, overcome obstacles, and get the team working together to accomplish the mission. Ultimately, they must fully accept that there truly are no bad teams, only bad leaders. So now we're going to get into the principle. Blaze brings up uh, About Face, The Odyssey of an American Warrior by David Colonel Hackworth, which About Face, I don't know what the chron chronology is because I believe Colonel Hackworth served in multiple wars. The one I read particularly, he served in Vietnam. Uh, this is another book that uh, they've talked about. It's called About Face. Although a controversial figure later in life, Hackworth was an exceptional and highly respected battlefield leader. In the book, Hackworth relates the philosophy of his U.S. Army mentors who fought and defeated the Germans and Japanese in World War II. There are no bad units, only bad officers. This captures the essence of what extreme ownership is all about. This is a difficult and humbling concept for any leader to accept, but it is an essential mindset to building a high-performance winning team. I kind of always wonder why he says it's a difficult thing to accept because I don't really have a hard time accepting it much. The ego. Mm. Fair enough. That's 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 the tie. That's that's gonna be the tie of this of this chapter. It's the ego. Uh, sometimes you get a suggestion from your parent, your mom, or your dad, and you're, and you get defensive, and a snap. And that's that's a that's a part of the ego. And I, I deal with it every day. I promise you. I, 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 I see it because I can. I, I, I'm learning to read people's faces more than what they're saying. You know, their gestures, their actions. But I'm just, I'm just guilty. You know, I have to eat, I have to eat, have to eat my spit for a little, my, my saliva for a little bit. And it's like, let, let me let this little feeling go down, and let me see. Is it, is it a better idea? Is it a good idea? Can we build off this idea? But it takes those ten seconds of like, not saying anything. Letting it sit in your mind and then making an approach. But that's what, that's what he means. This is a difficult and humbling concept. It's the ego. Fair enough. So here, back to the book. When leaders who epitomize extreme ownership drive their teams to achieve a higher standard of performance, they must recognize 
that when it comes to standards as a leader, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. When setting expectations, no matter what has been said or written, if substandard performance is accepted and no one is held accountable, if there is no consequences, that poor performance becomes the new standard. Therefore, leaders must enforce standards. Consequences for failing need not immediately severe, but leaders must ensure that tasks are repeated until the higher expected standard is achieved. Leaders must, pu must push the standards in a way that encourages and enables the team to utilize extreme ownership. I've kind of brought that up. And I, I, I brought up with a show, actually, you know, the Josh Turner and the Mercedes shows. And I didn't, honestly, it wasn't in reference to this book. Maybe it's just a seed that I've, because I've read it, um, where it's hard to, for me, it's hard to grasp any new details when, I've, I, when I know I messed up 10 times on this previous two shows, you know. And that, that's, that's how I tie it in, at least now. At least now I can, you know, I can tie it in. I can let you know that that's what I think or that, that's uh, how I feel. You know, if I know I mess up five times per show, then for the next show we're adding more details. Well, now I'm thinking about my ten mistakes plus the new stuff. And it might then stay the same because I'm never able to hammer down the ten errors in a live performance. It's it kind of to me it kind of it's kind of a like with a student who he had a, maybe some little mishaps tec technique wise in live performance but he was doing fine in the classroom. It's kind of like one of those scenarios as well. Or for me that, that's what that's what I that's what I connected it to. So moving forward, once a culture of extreme ownership is built into the team at every level, the entire team performs well and performance continues to improve, even when a strong leader is temporarily removed from the team. On the battlefield, preparation for potential casualties plays a role, critical role in a team's success if a key leader should go down. But life can throw any number of circumstances in the way of any business or team, and every team must have junior leaders ready to step up and temporarily take on the roles and responsibilities of their immediate bosses to carry on the team's mission and get the job done if and when the need arises. Which is kind of what I said, you know, working up and down the chain of command. They, the boat crew got a new leader. It's like, hey, sir, welcome. Uh, we're ready to get to work, you know. And the leader says, oh, we're going to do work. He, maybe, he's a, maybe he's a radical changer. And it's like, whoa, whoa sir, okay, I, I, like, I like your ideas, but let's be, uh, maybe, I guess if the, if the junior leader's smart, quote, unquote, he would say, oh, that's awesome, that's awesome. Let's, let's add this to it, you know. And if the, now if the, if the senior leader is still like prying, 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 um, I'm pretty sure it would be foreseen. Like I'm pretty sure like the instructors in the cadre would be able to see that. Okay, here's, here's, here's a piece uh, moving on as far as uh, the ego and letting those 10 seconds pass by. Leaders should never be satisfied. They must always strive to improve and they must always they must build the mindset into the team. They must face the facts through a realistic, brutally honest assessment of themselves and their team's performance. Identifying weaknesses, good leaders seek to strengthen them and come up with a plan to overcome challenges. That's the only part that I want to say. You know, the brutally honest, brutally honest self-assessment. You know, being self-aware. And when you get a suggestion and you're like, and it's against what you think should happen. You know, giving those ten seconds, being the the ounce, extra ounce of patience, you know, uh, to 
maybe you can build off of it. Maybe you can add it to the original plan. You know, uh, but um, having options—that's that's my favorite. Is having options. Uh, I think that I think I I do circle around a lot about that. Even when I'm asking you questions, it's like, what about this, Eddie? What about this, Eddie? I, I'm just hitting you with questions as much as I can. If I foresee something that maybe we can add to it, or maybe a, just a maybe a different perspective that you didn't think about. And maybe I agree with you. Honestly, maybe I agree with you. But if I if I see a different perspective, at least bring it up, then we can move forward. You know, usually, honestly, usually just to move forward. But if at least if I were to bring up a different perspective, if there's a new possibility that you maybe that you maybe didn't think about, at least now it's there. We kind of weigh the which one's better, and then from there move on. You know, which, which uh, option would be better. So now we're gonna go to the application to business, the third piece of the. Of this chapter, so here he's working with the CEO of a financial services company. The CEO, the CEO opened the program and introduced me to those in the room, explaining why he had invested in this training. We aren't winning, the CEO stated plainly. A new product rollout the company had recently launched had not gone well, and the company's books were in the red. Now the company stood at a pivotal junction. We need to take on these concepts like extreme ownership, which Leif is going to talk to you about today, so that we can get back on track and win. When the CEO then left the room all to me, his senior managers and department heads. After presenting some background on my combat experience and how the principle of extreme ownership was critical to the success of any team, I engaged the department heads and managers in discussion. How can you apply extreme ownership to your teams to succeed and help your company win, I asked. One of the company's key department leaders, the chief technology officer, who built the company's signature products, exhibited a defensive meaner. He was not a fan of extreme ownership. I quickly recognized why. Since the new product line had been his baby, taking ownership of the dis disastrous rollout was, a humbling, was humbling and difficult. The CTO was full of excuses for why his team had failed and for the resulting damage to the company's bottom line. He shamelessly blamed the failed new product rollout on a challenging market, an industry in flux, inexperienced personnel within his team, poor communication with the sales force, and lackluster customer service. He also blamed the company's senior executive team. The CTO refused to take ownership of mistakes or acknowledged that his team could perform better through though the CEO had made it clear they must all improve or the company might fold. So that's that's kind of like that that's where I was getting to where you know being defend that as soon as and this is something that I'm trying to become more more attentive to for myself is recognizing when I'm being defensive. If someone tells me something's like it's like no or or if I could say or even just honestly ignoring it and bringing up like a whole different topic or something, a whole different point. Um, definitely trying to be more conscious about that. I know I'm trying to work on that. Uh, Same. Uh, it makes me immediately just think about what we do on a on a weekend to weekend basis, like playing in front of people. And um, you know, there's been like a couple of those places that just don't pan out for us. And and at some point when we were still kind of young and just starting out with with all of this with the team we have now, uh, the players we have now in mm -hmm. the band. It was kind of like, ah, guys, we need to like, we need to step it up. Like, we need to be a little more entertaining. We need to look up. Like, faces need to come up. Smiles need to, you know, appear on on your face, and that needs to translate across audiences. 
and it's a, just like that overwhelming feeling of like, okay, like this is this is kind of my baby. These are my songs, or these are mostly songs I've picked, and whatever. And and this is kind of my mission, and these guys are helping me implement that. But then we just, just some venues just it just doesn't go well, mm-hmm. and you know you gotta just kind of scrap up what you can and then move on and find another one or just kind of keep going. You know, not everything's going to be a hundred percent all the time. And that's, you know, just something kind of have to live with, but like all in all, um, I totally relate to, um, the guy with his, you know, the tech guy with his product. And then like, you know, you kind of have to take responsibility for the, for the failure and it totally sucks to do, but it, I mean, just going along with the theme of the book, it all comes back to you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for me, I guess like with this entertainment aspect, it comes back on me because I myself at times would not translate the same um, emotion that I wanted my team to translate to a crowd. So it just, it, again, like it's a humbling thing to have to swallow, but it has to be swallowed. Yeah. Whether you swallow that pill hole or you have to break it up with a knife and then and then <laughs> do it and in pieces, but you have to do it. So, and well, sorry to, no, no, you're good, you know, you're good. but and, and now we do. I feel like a lot better of a job. I still like, I still think there's things we need to work on and things I need to work on. Um, but overall, like it's gotten a ton better from where it started out. Mm-hmm. I agree, and uh, that's also I think why, like yesterday in particular, even with the fatigue and everything, the hours went by pretty fast. You know, the hour sets. You know, the hour. By the time you know we're 30, 40 minutes in, by the time you know it's the last song and that's it. Then the set one. Then same thing. Then it's set two. Set three, done. You know, it was, it was gone before you know it. At least for me, it was gone before you know it. Yeah. Um. Uh, the, the big thing for me is even, like, through the vocal fatigue from the third set, it's just I'm, I'm just kind of to the point now. It's like, all right, I'm going to sound like what I'm going to sound like. I'm going to do my best to sound as well as possible and to make sure that I'm going to get through this in a healthy and, and good way. So forget about whatever bad notes come out. Just have fucking fun with it yeah. and just try to let it roll. Especially something like that, in that situation where you know it's your voice, <laughs> you know, it's your, yeah, it's your, it's that's that's your your primary instrument in this situation, and you know, um, so let's get back to the book. So he then he gives the the boat crew leader example to the CTO, and eventually gets to the point of changing the boat crew leaders right right before changing the boat crew leaders. So this is about the original boat crew four, the guy who was essentially failing his team. In his mind, the other boat crews were outperforming his own only because those leaders had been lucky enough to be assigned better crews. His attitude reflected victimization. Life dealt him and his crew, boat crew members a disadvantage, which justified poor performance. As a result, his attitude prevented his team from looking inwardly at themselves and where they could improve. Finally, the leader and each member of the of boat crew six focused not on the mission but on themselves their own exhaustion misery and individual pain and suffering though the instructors demanded that they do better boat crew six had become comfortable with substandard performance working under poor leadership and in an unending cycle of blame the team constantly failed no one took ownership assumed responsibility or adopted a winning attitude so moving forward from there, because I, I just want to read that because of, cause of the, main, the main thing, you know, his attitude reflected victimization. And then he goes on to do, talk about what life had dealt him and his team and, you know, sub, subpar performance. So now they get back to the situation of the company. 
The chief technology officer bristled. We are making the right decisions, he said. He was serious. Surprised at his statement, I responded, You've all admitted that as a company you aren't winning. We, na- we may not be winning, said the CTO resol- resolutely, but we're making the right decisions. If you aren't winning, I responded, then you aren't making the right decisions. The CTO was so sure he was right, so content to make excuses and shift blame for his own mistakes and failures that he made ludicrous claims to avoid taking any ownership or responsibility. Just like the original boat crew leader in Boat Crew 4, this CTO exhibited the opposite of extreme ownership. He took no meaningful action to improve his performance or push his team to improve. And what I'm going to know is that he took no meaningful action to improve his own performance, to improve his performance. Back to the book. Worse, he refused to admit that his own performance was subpar and that he and his team could do better. His CEO had stated plainly that the company's performance must improve substantially. But the CTO was stuck in a cycle of blaming others and refused to take ownership or responsibility. He had become what a good friend from my own buds class and SEAL qualification training dubbed the tortured genius. By this, he did not mean the artist or musician who suffers from mental health issues, but in the context of ownership. No matter how obvious his or her failing or how valid the criticism, a tortured genius in this sense accepts zero responsibility for mistakes, makes excuses, and blames everyone else for their failings and those of their team. In their mind, the rest of the world just can't see or appreciate the genius in what they are doing. An individual with a tortured genius mindset can have catastrophic impact on the team's performance. So here, so after that, Leif says he talked with the rest of the department heads, you know, individually as well, the way he did with the CTO. The majority of them got the concept, uh, the CEO then talks to Leif after the, I guess after the work day. How did things go, he asked. The workshop went well. Most of your department heads and key leaders took on board this concept of extreme ownership, I replied. You have one ma- we have one major issue, though. Let me guess, replied the CEO, my chief technology officer. Affirmative, I responded. He resisted the concept of extreme ownership at every turn. I had seen this before, both in the SEAL teams and with other client companies. In any group, there was always a small number of people who wanted to shirk responsibility, but this CTO was a particularly serious case. Your CTO might be one of the worst tortured geniuses I have seen, I said. The CEO acknowledged that that his CTO was a problem, that he was difficult to work with and other department leaders in the company work with, and other department leaders in the company had major issues with him. But the CEO felt that because the CTO's experience level and knowledge were critical to the company, he couldn't possibly fire him. It also seemed that the CTO felt he was above reproach. I can't tell you to fire anyone, I responded. Those are decisions only you can make. But what I can tell you is this. When it comes to performance standards, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. You have to drive your CTO to exercise extreme ownership, to acknowledge mistakes, stop blaming others, and lead his team to success. If you allow the status quo to persist, you can't expect to improve performance, and you can't expect to win. And that was, that was the final conversation for the day.
So he says a week later, uh, Leif follows up with him. And the CEO's more happy about the situation. So then they bring up the CTO. The CEO related how upon my departure, the CTO had barged into his office and warned that the concept of extreme ownership had negative repercussions. This was laughable. There are no negative repercussions to extreme ownership, I said. There are only two types of leaders, effective and ineffective. Effective leaders that lead successful, high-performance teams exhibit extreme ownership. Anything else is simply ineffective. Anything else is bad leadership. The CTO's performance, the CTO's performance and the performance of his team illustrated this in Technicolor. His abrasiveness affected his entire team and other departments in the company that had difficulty working with him. The CEO understood. His company wasn't winning, and he cared too much about the company he had built and the livelihood of his other employees to allow the company to fail. They must do better. He let the, CEO, he let the CTO go. A new CTO came on board with a different attitude, a mindset of extreme ownership. With this change in leadership of the company's technology team, other departments began to work together with success. And the teamwork played a key role as the company rebounded. Once failing and struggling to survive, the company was now back on a path toward profitability and growth. Their success illustrated once again that leadership is the most important thing on any battlefield. It is the single greatest factor in whether a team succeeds or fails. A leader must find a way to become effective and drive high performance within his or her team in order to win. Whether in SEAL training, in combat, on distant battlefields, in business, or in life, there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Man, I feel fired up. And that is the conclusion of Chapter 2. Dope. But you, I think as we continue through this book journey, chapter by chapter, week by week, whenever uh, we have this time, this space, uh, Brian can't make it and vice versa, um, Eddie and everybody else can continue to see what my mindset is. And if I say something... Like I said, more now, it's more of a 27 thing, 2017 thing is being conscious of every single thing you say, think, or do. And that, that's a growing process because we all went through college. I worked a job while in college. I worked my way up the, the ladder a little bit. As, as, I got as far as I wanted to go. But through that is where that was probably the first seed of like, it's not what you preach, what you tolerate. In the sense of like, okay, I, I didn't want to get paid... Because I feel like anything above that position I reached, uh, it wasn't enough compensation. And the time, it was a lot more time that I was going to have to put into this company that I wasn't willing to do because it wasn't my overall goal. A lot of the people that I worked with there, they were quote-unquote lifers. You know, they, they, they were going to work in retail for forever or they've worked in retail for forever. And I'm, I'll never get, forget my boss. He's like, why don't you just get your degree, become an assistant manager, and then you can move back. Like, you move back to the valley. And then open your own store. You make like 50, 60 grand a year. You get commission. You get bonuses, whatever. Um, and like you can, he's like, then you can just like chill. Um, and like by this time, I had already decided like, no, <laughs> I'm only working because I have apartment. I have some bills to pay. But I've accepted that responsibility of, okay, my parents are helping me already. The rest of it's on me. 
you know, um, there's a deeper story to my college experience from the beginning. But uh, in general, going back to retail and, and this chapter is that where, you know, no bad leaders, bad teams. Or no, no bad teams, bad leaders. And being very conscious with everything. Being so in tune with it. The way I feel right now, because I just expressed right now, I feel fired up after just hearing that, um, is because, like, you know, I, I feel like sometimes we just reach, like, a point of just mental exhaustion, and um, it gets harder and harder and harder to persevere through, um, you know, through trying to reach a goal, through trying to reach an accomplishment or whatnot, you know. And um, it's it's a lot easier to just kind of give up and just kind of admit to yourself, or not maybe not admit to yourself, admit's going to be the wrong word here, but fool yourself into thinking there's no way out of um, of losing when really there is. You just kind of have to take that extreme ownership, so to speak. Um, and and maybe this isn't like you know the solution for every given situation, but it's definitely a big um, percent of the fat there. You can you can derive from yes, that. you can. Uh, yes. You can definitely take the concept is, I think primarily is it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate, and. For me, let's let's go back to my retail experience. So, I made it to a certain point, and even the fork I brought up like uh, where my manager wanted me to get a forklift certification, and had I had I gone to the certification, not get paid more for it, not get compensated for it, and still go about it, but then I complain about it, well, it's not what you preach, what you tolerate, because the tolerate is the action, and that's where the consciousness comes in. And that's that's where I yeah that's that's where I that's what I get from it you know uh, uh, you don't have to say um, maybe you're not a tortured genius but maybe your ego's in the way because mm-hmm. in this case in this particular case the this product was his baby so he his his he was the ultimate right he was right the the general ego is what I told you right now hey, we're like let's say we're let's say you're getting a suggestion from your parents. And you get de- if if you get defensive now if you don't like not not you but now we're going to a general sense like you as a person anybody listening if you sense any type of defensiveness that's ego that's your mind saying no you're wrong my idea is still right without even considering the possibility maybe your option is better maybe you can add their option whoever gives you that an option maybe you can add it or maybe you can. Use it for something else. You never know. I feel like that's also why I write down everything now. I have journals. Like, I literally have journals now. <laughs> and I have, like, four or five journals of just stuff. I was going to say shit, but it's not shit. It's, like, stuff that I write because I'll never know when I need to use it. Not only that, but, man, like, imagine, like, down the line, like, you have kids or you, like, and they have kids and then they, those kids have kids and then, like, you know, there's just years flying by and it's, like, way late into the 2000s and they're just discovering your stuff after you're long gone and what you thought was important. That's right. cool to me. That. Shit, I didn't even think about that. See, like that that would be something like that I didn't think about. It's a perspective thing. Like it's an extra idea that Eddie then gave to me right now. It's like, man, you know, for the most part, I finish the journal, I recycle it. You know, I I, I get rid of a lot of the stuff. So maybe I won't now. Don't <laughs> you know? don't do maybe it. Maybe I won't now because I'm do the journal, uh, I have it here, of course, no one can see it except for Eddie, but this journal I started I had at the beginning of the school year, especially more towards uh when we started like the substituting stuff. So I write like my, it started out with writing my sub gigs, right? Whatever substitute gigs I get. And then after that, I just, like if I'm listening to a podcast, my notes go in here. And if if I have to, a couple of songs I have to chart, I charted for us, whatever, it came out of this, but I tore it out of here. And like, 
I don't know that I've ever finished a journal. Because of school, like, you usually, it's, let's say, I, I remember, like, back in, like, middle school and stuff, like, you needed a journal for every single class, whatever. And I still have some of those that I've torn out, like, that math. Because, like, the math that it's in there is, like, okay, it's, it's not relevant. But I can still use a paper. Anyways, going back to this is writing down, you know, writing stuff down because you never know when that idea could work. Man, and even, like, uh, for me, you never know when that idea is going to be forgotten from your brain <laughs> accidentally. Yeah. Um, and that's something I like to start doing now. Like I start writing stuff down. Like when we were um, driving back um, yesterday from Conroe, and we're listening to an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast. Yes. Is, uh, yeah, Justin Wren. Justin Wren. Name? Yeah. Yeah. And so he said something I thought was super profound, which was uh, the answer to poverty is not charity; it's opportunity. And I just like something I usually never do, but trying to be in the habit of. It's like I'm gonna type that down on my freaking phone because that's like what I had. I didn't have a journal or a pen right. or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I had a phone. So I was like, I'm going to write this down because I'm totally going to fucking forget it. Yeah. And then uh, along with that, I also wrote down um, certain documentaries about poverty. Um, One of them was Poverty, Inc., and another one was a book that I forgot the title, which is bound to happen, but I have it written down. Yeah, yeah, you can go back, and you know it's there. Um, But Yeah, man. But going back, let's go back to just the main thing, which is ego. You know, in this case, he gave an example of, because the tortured genius is the extreme, most extreme example that that person is, is not able to be coached and therefore the CEO said my company is more important than you because of all this investment and all these people that are involved in it it's not just about you that by that time I, I in the I'm so default aggressive at the moment that I don't know how, how I handled it as CEO let's let's say I was your boss Eddie let's just say I don't know how I'd handle that right now because I'm so default aggressive when it come when a push comes to shove that I, you know, I become attached to the situation, and maybe I'll tell you, I won't. My, maybe I won't yell at you, but I'll be like, "This is it, done." You know, that, that's kind of my final, sometimes my final approach. But what's great though is your default aggressive in that situation because you care about the team more than yes. this certain individual True. cares about themselves, True. which yes. is it's from a good place. Is okay, what I'm trying to say that's fair. Yeah, and I t- honest funny thing is actually I, I talked about this with my mom. Uh, I think it was yesterday when we got in. You dropped me off, and I got in, and and. Honestly, we got straight into business. We started talking about. I'm like, "How's your weekend?" And she gave me her sales, and we got into that. Uh, eventually, got into um, how did the gig go and the, the team thing, and how to go with us three. You know, the stage, things we had to deal with on the stage and whatnot. No monitors and whatever. Going back to being conscious about the team, all the time, but that goes back to being conscious of what you say, think, and do every single day or any time. You know. Um, I know it's it. I know it plays a factor in why I do read certain books at the moment. You know, certain books um, that are. I mean, they're not relevant to music. They're business books or or even uh, philosophy books. You know, Marcus Aurelius, the other one that I'm just inching through, really, literally page by page at this point, because I I uh, oh telling inside note, but for the Marcus Aurelius book, dude, it's so good. I try to take notes on it. I, I might as well just rewrite like every word because like oh yeah and the cool thing is now let's, let's move forward from the team thing is because he led battles like he was the uh, Roman em- uh, Roman Caesar or emperor wh- however that works but he was so conscious of the people he dealt with and the people who influenced him and and I know I know Brian relates to this and I know you do but Finding these parallels with people out there that have existed or exist. Um, one thing that Jocko brought up this past week's episode 
was one of the questions that he was asked was how does he get through like reading books? Because he reads basically a book a week for the podcast, right? And how does he get through that? And he he brought up like sometimes like he not that he gets bored, but he get he you can only read the same book for so long at, at, at one you know he he says he gives himself like an hour in the morning and an hour at night, but maybe he has some time in the middle, but he won't necessarily read that book. He'll read another book, and and that was a parallel for me because right now I'm essentially reading three different books, which is Unshakable by Tony Robbins, then the opti- uh realistic op- realistic optimist optimist okay I can remember the book. I don't have it here in my room. It's it's in my backpack. But uh, The Realistic Optimist by Mike Ridley. And then going over extreme ownership, you know. And then, and then well, then Power of Myth, too. I'm kind of just inching through. Because the, the thing is about, in this case, is that for extreme ownership and Power of Myth, I've already read the books. Extreme ownership, I've, I read it three times last year. So this is my fourth time, but now I'm able to inch through it and get really detailed, like today with the, you know, trying to hopefully give some good points. Now, I did leave out some stuff. I feel like I, doing a chapter per episode whenever we get the chance allows me to give a lot of more insight where Jocko does a whole book in two, two three hours. You know, he does, he does skip sections and chapters because you can't read a book in three You can't explain a book in three hours. But good on him because he's like, well, you, if you're interested enough, if this, if this particular book captures you, you can then go buy it and read it. And I've done that with at least half the books. That's why I have a freaking shelf. I never, honestly, I shit you not, I never thought I'd have a shelf of books in my house, in my room, at least for me. I never, I mean, I was such an anti-reader back in school. And, of course, college changed that. But, but I found what I liked to read about. Yeah, and even me, myself, I've never been a big reader. Never thought I'd go to the library and get a library card and read a book a week. Yeah. Never thought that happened. Right, and it's, it's so crazy. And one thing, because actually, this is something I'm consciously bringing up to clients now, is because uh, I, I take books intentionally to work. Because I do have some free time sometimes, so I do read there. Like, if I'm not doing anything, I'm going to read. And now some of the clients have caught on, like, oh, what are you reading this week? And whatever. So they're like, oh, and because they bring up they bring up what I used to bring up. is like, oh, I, I can't find myself. I can't read. Like, it's not that I can't read, but um, I can't make myself read or whatever. I'm like, find a, find a topic that you like. I'm like, because every single book that I have at the moment is something that is extremely relevant to either I'm trying to learn for myself, reread to then uh, give to somebody else, like Eddie, you know, Extreme Ownership, Eddie, and then those listening for this week's episode. Um, then the Marcus Aurelius things is Marcus Aurelius thing is kind of like me. It's my thing, you know. The Tony Robbins book that's a family thing because it involves retirement, it involves money management. You know, um, I know I brought that I brought up that topic a few weeks ago. I, I asked the question, "Have you thought about retirement?" And the people I'm asking right now, because the range of people I know at this moment is pretty vast, but I'd say the closer acquaintances I have range from you know our age, 25 to maybe 30, and talking to them about it, and you just see their face kind of go blank. So it's like, cool. Well, I'm gonna read this book for you, and if you want, if you want the help, I'll help you. And so that, that, that's, that's, but that's just something that I do. I don't know. That's just a me thing. I don't want to keep ranting too much. Um, we did hit a lot of cool points. I don't know if you have anything else, Eddie. Um, everybody just find your hustle. Find what will allow you to be awake for 18 hours a day, 20 hours a day. You know, they, one point that Gary Vee brings up in one of his videos is he's so anxious to go to sleep at night. Sometimes because he knows in the morning he's gonna get after about whatever he's about, whatever his schedule says for the next day. 
like that, you know, being fired up, that's what get him. That's what gets him. So I want to just leave with that. Find what gets you. Find what, what will get you to stay awake for 20 hours a day. And maybe you take a nap. I mean, I take a nap. I take naps. Ask Eddie. I slept on the road like half the time, on and off for 30, 40 Good Lord. 45. You guys are the worst co-pilots ever on <laughs> and this And I used trip. to be really good at being awake yeah, for the shifts. Yeah, you usually are really good. And I just could not hold it. And I honestly, I, I will admit my faulty fatigue in my back, but it just, it gets so grueling on my right side, honestly, that I just like, I just sleep it away because I'm going to be in this truck for another four hours. <laughs> you know, so. No, but I did the same thing. Like, well, when I went up there with Matt the first time we yeah. played at Red Brick Tavern, I was like, you can ask him, I was asleep. <laughs> The whole way up and the whole way back, I was asleep. And then we'd, like, on the way back, we like I'd wake up a little bit and pass through Dris- uh, Driscoll. Yeah, you Driscoll. And then it's like, oh, we still got two hours to go. Fuck this. I'm going back yeah. to bed. Yeah. And my tell me you're home. But anyways, anyways, back to the route and back to the sand, the back, back to the seed I'd like to plant for today is find what drives you. If it's a book that you do finish in 36 hours, do that. Um if it's spending a little, if it's spending an extra time, extra hour with your family, do that. Um, we can tell off into the family thing later again, but I'll leave you with that. Find what drives you. Find find that thing. <laughs>